Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to series two of the Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Holly Ransom to the conversation this morning. Good to have you. Thanks Holly. for having me, Melissa. It's lovely to be here. My pleasure. So Holly, let me run through, um, I was going to say a brief bio, but you've packed so much in that it's hard to keep it brief. So I'm going to run through <laughs> a bio and then I'm going to throw to you to, to share a bit more about yourself with us. So um, for the audience, Holly, is a globally renowned keynote speaker and author um, with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Holly was named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review, delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee as a future game changer to watch and was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. Holly has interviewed the likes of Barack Obama, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King and Condoleezza Rice. Holly's a Fulbright Scholar and her book, The Leading Edge, is now available. And in that, Holly helps people harness their own potential to lead by asking better questions. Holly was identified early as a dynamic thought leader and asked to co-chair the G20 Youth Summit in 2014, the United Nations Coalition of Young Women Entrepreneurs in 2016, and became the youngest director ever to be appointed to an Australian football club with her appointment to Port Adelaide. Holly's also been a regular on the likes of The Drum and Q&A and has a fabulous podcast series called Coffee Pods. Whoo, Holly. <laughs> Brilliant to have you with us. Thank you for a very generous introduction. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, and just for the audience, there was a lot more I could have selected to go through. <laughs> so, um, Holly, you know, for our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, you know, I would just love you to share a little bit about, you know, your journey and, and tell us who you are um, and why you are who you are. <laughs> Big question. Um, well, again, thank you for a, a very generous setup. I feel like the audience has has most of the picture now, so there's probably not much I need to fill in. But I think the the big thing for me is uh, the line in the bio. It's probably really easy to skip over, but in many ways, was for me sort of, you know, when people ask, "Oh, how did you make decisions?" or "Where did it start?" It, it is that line about you're not walking past it, and that comes from my grandmother and her incredibly sort of pivotal influence and. For those who've already picked up a copy of The Leading Edge, you'll you know my grandma is one of the heroes of the story and she is a truly remarkable woman. She's 90 years old this year and been married to my grandpa 70 years uh, as well, which is quite remarkable. Beautiful. And she's always been this incredible example. And I think that's one of the things that's significant about her. It was never saying, it was always doing. Um, and I think many times over, she's been humbled or embarrassed to think that myself and, and many of our family see her as such a role model because she's someone just gets on and does it. There's a right way to do things and you do it the right way. And when I was little, when I was four or five, one of my earliest memory 
which I always think is sort of a little marker for each of us. What, what is our first memory and how does that show up in our life in the present day? Mm. Um, whether it's things that we love and passions we end up coming back to, you know, it amazes me so often when I talk to engineers and I hear that at four, they were taking things apart and putting it back together on the lounge room floor. Yeah. But for me, it was a day out shopping with grandma and, and we were in the queue to buy stuff to go home and make lunch. Um, and this is in Western Australia where I grew up. And there was this guy that was standing in front of us in the queue that was a giant by all accounts in my head at that stage of life. You know, it was this big guy would have been probably well over six foot or at least in my head as a four-year-old. And he was yelling uh, quite aggressively at the woman that was on the checkout who'd evidently given him the wrong change. He was really hoeing into her about it. And my grandma, before I could blink, had inserted herself between this giant and this poor young woman that was on the checkout that looked like she wanted to melt into the floor mm. and pointed her hand up at this guy and said, how dare you talk to that young woman like that? You apologise. <laughs> it was so funny because I don't think this guy had ever been talked to like that in his life. He sort of, you know, it took a moment, quite startled, uh, sheepishly grabbed his stuff and mumbled sorry and sort of, you know, hurried out of the store. And grandma thought nothing of it. Like that's, that's one of the things I love about my grandma. That was just what you did, you know. And uh, she bought everything that she needed and proceeded to go out the store before she realised I was still wedded back in line, sort of watching all this transpire. I remember saying to her, you know, she reached back for my hand, Grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I didn't realise till long after that the significance of what grandma taught me and how that's knitted together in so many different points of my life that really where I've chosen to devote uh, career uh, decisions, where I've chosen to get involved in projects, um, all that sort of stuff really stems back to things that I wasn't prepared to walk past. Mm. And I think what I loved about my grandma in that moment is, you know, grandma had no, no title. She wasn't running around as CEO of that shopping center. She wasn't uh, anywhere near the physical stature of the person that she was choosing to intervene, you know, and, and correct the behavior of and ensure there was respectful behavior going on. Um, and she didn't need any of that to give her permission. And one of the things I think is really important, it's a heartbeat of the, the, the book that I've written, is that I think we need to see our leadership in those small moments as as important as the leadership in big movements, because really that's where it all begins. You know, what we signal, what we walk past or don't walk past, the way that our actions and behaviour then ripples out and sets the tone for others uh, is so powerful. And I think we need to reclaim our agency in that respect. What haven't you been able to walk past? What are some examples? Oh, so many things. I mean, I, I, I look back and go, you know, my earliest work was in, um, it was in homelessness because about five years later, I, I walked past a homeless man who was trying to tell me that the dollar and 20 cents and he had in his hat was a good day. And it burst my bubble. And I didn't realize that people were trying to live in that circumstance as a 10 year old. And all of a sudden I wanted to get involved in, you know, organized primary school fundraisers for the local homeless shelter. Mm. You know, then it's been, you know, a, a lot of my work has been around um, women's rights, which is still an enormous challenge here in Australia, let alone globally. I've worked on a lot of projects and for a lot of different organisations that play a hand in that. Uh, a lot of work in youth advocacy and trying to give stronger voice to young people. Uh, and particularly, you know, you mentioned the G20, that was an opportunity to do that at a global level, but really around skills, pathways to employment. And probably the other one is, is mental health, you know, an issue that I still don't think we're having enough of a conversation about and yet is touching each and every 
one of our lives, either directly or indirectly. Um, so they're just some of the, the causes that, you know, either the current state of play or the, the situation or a particular injustice that I might have been exposed to was something that I just went, oh, you got to be kidding. Like, there's got to be a way to do it better here and maybe I can be a part of, of better. Of helping that. Yeah. Oh, can I, um, and, and I love that story about your grandmother having such a, such a big impact on you and how you've been able to link that with, you know, it's, it's in the top paragraph of, you know, how you describe yourself and it's kind of driven a lot of the actions that you've spoken about. I would love to go back because I know you had initially um, a sort of traditional corporate career. So there was a point mm -hmm. at which you decided to hop off that track um, I would love to hear a little bit about that if we can, if we can go right back there. Yeah, sure. So I was, I, I'd been fortunate enough to have some incredible opportunities to work for some great leaders in the corporate landscape. And one of the best pieces of advice I got early in my career was it was more important who you work with and for than the work that you're doing. And so I'd really sought to go to work for leaders who I admired and who I saw as trying to be the change in their respective environments. So I, I worked, uh, this is kind of spanning my university degree. I originally started in the law, then I'd moved into mining to work for Sam Walsh at Rio Tinto. Then I jumped into the banking world and I was lucky enough to be chief of staff in that world to Andrew Hagger. And then uh, at that point, I was at a place, I think, in my career, particularly after having had the privilege alongside that role in banking of leading the youth summit for the G20, where I just felt such an enormous degree of purposefulness in my work. And it also had this ability in a really short period of time to mobilise quite an extraordinary level of, of momentum and change, you know, in conjunction with young people, you know, volunteering right across the world as part of that campaign and effort. And I think for me, that was where I sort of went, wow, that's the sort of stuff I want to be doing more of. I want to be leaning into um, projects, um, endeavours, causes, working alongside leaders where there's the ability to seize an opportunity that's present in the moment to drive real and meaningful, sustainable change. So uh, at that point, it was a decision. Um, and I think in many ways, I'd been, I'd been building to it. I'd been encouraged by mentors since I was 19 to be sort of doing my own thing alongside everything else I was doing. Uh, and so I'd been dabbling in my own business since 19 when a mentor sort of said, you know, all this stuff you're doing in nonprofit world and social enterprise has enormous application to, to the corporate landscape. You should really think about, you know, setting up a business and doing that. So be ticking along and I sort of decided at that point, you know, why not? Why not have a go? Um, and, the, you know, this, the world of uh, the corporate landscape, I can continue to, to engage in it, but just in a different capacity that I think makes better use of my skills and talents and allows me as well to be operating in the way that I think I work best. I work best with kind of this very diversified portfolio structure. And one of the things I probably learned about myself and I think that's one of the most important things we can learn about ourselves is you know, getting a sense of what it is that energizes us and how we need to structure our lives in order to ensure that we're fulfilled and feeling passionate and purposeful. And for me, one of those things is definitely being able to function with sort of maximum curiosity. So changing industry problem context all the time is when I think I'm at my best. Um, and that was really one of the, the decision points for wanting to go, look, I don't know what this will look like. I don't know if this will work, but I want to step out and have a go. And I guess that was six years ago now. Here I go. 
Holly, I want to stay for a minute on the theme of leadership with you. And so many people in our audience are, you know, really interested in improving their own leadership. And I just wonder if you could share a few pointers. You know, what have you got any thoughts on what the top three questions someone should ask themselves to improve their own leadership? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so critical about the, the question you've asked there is it does absolutely start with self first. And that's one of the reasons that the book I've just written on leadership, the whole first half is devoted to leading self before we talk about leading others, because I'm a big believer that until you can lead yourself, you can't lead others. Yeah. So when it comes to that kind of focus on self, I think the first thing is getting clear on what your why is. You know, you've got to understand, you know, why you want to lead. What, why is it that you want to get out of bed in the morning? You know, what's the impact that you're hoping to have on the world? Um, and that can be a really deep introspective exercise. Some of us know that a lot more readily than others. Some of us go on quite a journey to find it. Mm. But I think, you know, for those who haven't maybe landed on that yet, um, I always talk about trying to put yourself where lightning strikes. How can you put yourself in situations where you might be exposed to that passion. So how do you go out and volunteer with different causes or how do you go and put yourself in lots of different environments where what it is that makes you come alive is something that you might come across. Yeah. So I think that's really important. And for those who know it, one of the most powerful things is, is can you articulate it? You know, can you actually, um, I guess, put it on a, a bumper sticker or put it somewhere in front of you that you see every day because there's real power in knowing it with that clarity. So I think what's your why would be my first one. Um, the second one would be what anchors your how. So I think what are the values that you're driven by and that you want to embody in the way that you lead? And again, can you define them with the degree of clarity that you can check in with yourself every day and go, did I lead that way today? So not just kind of saying, oh, I'm all about integrity and hard work, but what do those things mean to you? You know, some people have an absolutely black and white version of integrity that means I would never tell a lie other people you know there's there's a view that white lies in certain circumstances are allowed you've got to get really clear with yourself on kind of what the boundaries are of those values that you aim to embody and live by and then I think the third one for me would be you know what uh, what are the habits that are going to allow you to put your leadership into practice and that comes back I think to knowing what it is that energizes you and what it is that you've got to put as building blocks in every day. So kind of both that choice around focus and priorities and goals. And then secondly, that piece around how do I actually put myself in the state to be able to sustainably show up and lead and make an impact and chip away because anything meaningful doesn't happen overnight. So all of us are playing a long game here. And so it's a lot about how you set yourself to be able to play that um, over, over that length of time. Fantastic. I, I love how many times in that response you used the word clarity. And it's a really interesting conversation because a lot of the people I talk to, when you bring up your the why in the first instance, a lot of people put so much pressure on themselves and, you know, are hard on themselves because they haven't, they can't answer that why. You know, they can't answer what it is that necessarily lights them up. So. And it's so hard. You know, I don't think people should should be um, pounding down on themselves for not knowing that. I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can uncover for ourselves. And it's also one of the most powerful things we can help illuminate for others in themselves. I mean, one of the best ways to work out your why is often to seek the feedback of people that know you well and that see you work and live because 
They'll tell you when you're in flow. They'll tell you when you come alive, even if sometimes you can't see that for yourself. Mm. Um, And I think that is one of often the ways that we know it's starting being curious and going inward first and going, you know, when is it that I lose track of time? What is it that I can talk underwater about? You know, when do I feel most in flow? Like I feel so energized that I could just keep going forever and and then continuing to to dig down and get deeper and deeper and then test it you know there's there's no need to get this right first go this is a constant iteration and and that's one of the things I'd say to people too is everything we're talking about here is not a destination it's an ever-evolving journey and one of the great joys I think of the time that we're living and leading in is it is that dynamic you know you are going to continue to refine and iterate because the world is moving so rapidly around us that we are getting such a dynamic set of ways that we can apply our talents and passions to make an impact on the world. So this isn't a static thing. It's something to keep revisiting with yourself. Absolutely. Holly, the um, conversation around brave feminine leadership um, came out of a place because a lot of women share that they sort of feel self-doubt and they self-project before they step into opportunities often. And so, you know, I can hear some people in the audience um, thinking that, yep, they might be able to come up and find that thing that sort of puts them in flow or lights them up or something along those lines. But the next, the next voice they hear in their head says to them, but who would pay you to do that? Uh, mm. you know, or who, who are you to think that you could do that? I just wonder if you can share with me, um, and when you and I first met, you shared a, a lovely story with me about, um, about your book and, um, you know, how that journey took you through a kind of vulnerable sort of process. I wonder if you'd be happy to share a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think all of us have those voices and those voices are particularly prey on us in areas where I think we feel, uh, you know, any aspect of vulnerability, whether it's that we're a beginner, whether that someone wants, whether it was a primary school teacher or a parent or anyone told us we weren't particularly good at that and we've taken that bit of feedback and it's sort of hardwired in our head or whatever it might be and and for me you know writing a book has been a a really big one um, because it's just so uh, different to anything that I've ever done before it is certainly putting a lot of yourself out there for the world to uh, pass judgment on uh, to to do whatever they want with and it just feels, I, I feel like anytime you step out of your wheelhouse, it, there's a degree to which that just feels new and different. And I also think that's something to be embraced. I mean, part of what I remind myself of in those moments where there, there is that flicker of doubt and going, oh gosh, what am I doing? Is that that's also when you're most alive. You know, that's when you're stretching and growing and there's new, new whatever around the horizon, whether that's opportunity or capability. So, I mean, the book has definitely had huge elements of that for me over the journey, you know, being a a first-time author and just exploring a whole new medium and trying to find your kind of voice and rhythm in that. I'm so proud of where the book has gotten to over the sort of nine, nine, ten-month journey that it took to to write it. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was honestly that so many people that I deeply admire and respect were so generous in allowing me to share part of the stories that they'd shared with me in this book. And it was really, for me, I think a vulnerability a lot around whether I'd done justice to them and whether or not they would feel uh, happy with the way that I told their story and sought to amplify kind of the everything that I see in them. So I think that was, you know, a, a big part of it. And the thing I remind myself, and it's actually a story I, I tell myself in the book, and it's the thing that I find really helpful in pushing through those moments 
when I was running my Ironman, my, my first one in Bustleton, which was an absolute hack job, like I really shouldn't have been attempting an endurance triathlon. I'd sort of started a hundred days out, sort of off the couch, not far off. I was sort of doing much you more strength-based couch, work. Couch to how many Ks did you do? Well, yeah, like it's a 3.8K swim and 180K cycle and then a marathon. And let's be clear, like it was... Uh, purely to finish there was no performance criteria in this I didn't know and it and it was quite genuinely there was so much fear in that like I was quite certain I'd probably just set myself a goal that I was going to colossally fail at but when I was coming back from the first loop of the ride in the Ironman so it's two 90k loops in in Bustleton and WA there's this mom and her two daughters that were sitting on the lawn and I, I could have been walking faster than I was riding at this time like it was 35k headwinds it was bucketing with rain um, I, my body was screaming at me going, are you joking, you idiot? We've got to do a whole the lap here? of this bike race and then a marathon. You're a nutcase. And then as I drove road past these, these um, girls on the front lawn, one of them, the little one of the two who looked about, I don't know, 10 years old, yelled out, mom, mom, look, it's a girl just like me. And one of those moments that changed the entire race, like I still get goosebumps talking yeah. about it because that little girl had no idea what she did in that moment. Yeah. But all of a sudden it wasn't about me. It was about the fact that the little girls were running alongside me and high-fiving me and not the boys. And you realised how few women there were out on that track. And it just meant everything in that moment. And so the big thing for me when I feel those moments of imposter syndrome, it's it's uh, I've got an image in my office where it's sort of a, a parent line in the front and there's cubs behind in sort of the background of the image. And it says on the bottom, I thought about quitting. And then I remembered who was watching. And I think that's one of the massive things for me. You know, I don't have kids yet, but it will certainly become even more, you know, powerful when, when we do in the next couple of years. But it's just that idea of I cannot get up in front of anybody, male, female, whatever, and talk about these ideas if I am not when my back's against the wall, when I'm feeling scared, leaning in and trying to do the exact same thing. And I think, I hope that's the power some people can see in this book is that I'm writing it in the trenches with you. It's not coming from a place of seeking to profess infinite wisdom. It's seeking to collect stories of people I think all of us can learn from. And the whole idea of the leading edge is choosing to do the next brave thing over and over again. And sometimes that's just quieting that little voice down in your head and going, no, be quiet. I can do it. And do it. I got goosebumps when you told that story as well. And I can picture the spring in your step um, at that point in time in terms of the energy. Holly, um, you know, one of the reasons for starting the interview series was just incredibly curious at the fact that we're just not seeing a lot of movement in females in key leadership roles. Um, You know, our numbers are still sitting largely where they were in 1995. Mm. And I just wondered whether you just had thoughts on that. You know, why are we still not getting the traction that perhaps we hoped we would see um, in terms of gender diversity, at least, um, in leadership roles? Yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? I think all of us um, wish that the numbers were better and that we had a silver bullet answer to that because, you know, when you look at... World Economic Forum and, and other bits of data around how far we are off equality, it's nothing short of, you know, demoralising. And it's certainly something I think about regularly. Like I want to hand a different world over to, to my children and to my grandchildren and, and all that sort of thing. And, and we're really hitting roadblocks. And 
one of the areas I was really interested to explore in the book was trying to provide some new thinking and new voices around the topics of diversity and inclusion. And uh, I won't kind of um, steal their thunder in terms of the way that they convey their ideas, but I think they're stories around how we tell the story, the way that we use data, the different way we've got to frame it are quite interesting. The realities that they share about the tokenism with which this topic is still approached and really wanting to challenge the idea that it's a little bit like how we talk about, you know, rainbow washing or green washing, this ability for organisations to sort of say one thing, but in terms of the realities of the culture and the practices needing to change it. And so I think they hone in on topics like, you know, recognition and things like that, that actually become the reality of what gets promoted in a workforce, as opposed to the, oh yeah, we're all about this. The reality of what actually happens in terms of cultural practices, I think is a really big part of that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's still a whole bunch of structural challenges that are really problematic. Um, and, and we all know that, right? There's a reality to that, that, that requires us to become better, I think, at Firstly, holding people to account on the progress that they're making and making sure when they make statements, there's actually progress being made relative to that. I think the second thing is sort of helping uh, share how it's done. There are a lot of well-meaning allies that I think would love to make progress and genuinely don't know how to do it better. And I think there's a bit of a worry in cancel culture day and age that you'll be shot for trying anything. Mm. Um, And so I think we do have to create a culture of making it uh, easier to f- like fail safe but quickly and learn and go on a collective learning journey. So there's this culture, almost like a high-performance culture of how do we have a go, learn, did that work or not? How do we make changes and continuously improve? So part of me thinks there's actually a challenge in the moment we're at in culture that we've made it very hard for some people to feel safe to have a go, um, which is just meaning that we're seeing a lot of the status quo maintained. And then I think we know there's still some realities, you know, like I work a lot with amazing female entrepreneurs and we know that 4% of venture capital worldwide goes to, you know, female founders, even less if you're talking about women of colour. So we've still got a reality that the tools needed to be able to succeed and to be able to put momentum behind your idea are still not at the fingertips of women in the way that they should be. So there's also some reality around how we need to help Um, give women the resources that they need to be able to succeed to the full extent of uh, to which they're capable. So there's a whole bunch for me in this world. And the other thing I'll say too, that is something I've been talking a lot about in in sort of these women in leadership conversations for a couple of years is I do have a real concern that if with where the workforce is going and everything we know about the future of automation and 42% of jobs being automated in the next decade, that with the increasing prominence of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and as we know, that is a, they're a very low percentage of our graduates, even coming out of high school, let alone out of university, studying those subjects, are women. We actually risk the numbers getting worse mm-hmm. as almost every business becomes a technology business. Mm-hmm. And the ability not necessarily to have to be deeply technical in those areas, because I don't for a second think that skill sets outside of those can't come to bear and add real value to those areas. I think that's so important. Um, but to be able to be literate in it, to be able to understand it well enough to make a contribution is going to be absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. So both the encouragement of more girls to study it, but also the mid-career skill ups for women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, that is going to be critical to make sure those numbers don't get worse, Mm -hmm. I think is something we've got to pay really close attention to. 
So you've spent some time in schools or you do spend some time in schools? Yeah, I absolutely love spending time in schools. Yeah, so what do you, what's your perspective on, you know, changes that could be made there, Um, you know, in the first instance in terms of driving people potentially towards those skill sets? One of the things I find really interesting, and it was it's probably one of those moments that you can just never quite forget. In International Women's Day a couple of years ago, I was at a, an all-girls school speaking to about a thousand girls um, that would have ranged from you know year one through to year uh, twelve. Mm-hmm. And I asked them a question. And I said, "Oh, girls, there's this study that says um, you know sort of you, you there are five criteria, five five conditions to get a job. Um, how many do you think?" that boys believe they need to meet before they'll apply. And I just sort of left that as an open question. They all shouted out and they they said, you know, zero and one and, you know, that sort of thing. And the answer is two, according yep. to the study. And then I said, how many do you think we think we need to meet? And you had five and sixes being yelled out in some corners. And I just had this moment of sitting there going, how do these girls in unison, like ranging from six to 17, know the answer to that already like there's something about the stories that we're telling our girls and the messaging that they're getting and I explore a couple of reasons for that in the book I, I've interviewed Gina Davis the work that she's doing with her film and television institute around the messaging we're actually getting through traditional media yes so how rarely girls are in speaking parts how rarely they're in jobs with technical qualifications like there's a problem in that there's a problem in the stories that girls are reading and we've got to make sure we're putting more strong female protagonists and more scientists and more you know entrepreneurs and everything so they can see themselves in that because what is scary is how unconsciously they self-select out you know, before they've even hit the age of 12. You know, those early years, if early learning educators have taught me anything, they've taught me so much over the course of my last decade of work, it's that so many of those attitudes are set by the time we turn 10. It's very hard to turn the tide by that point. So the power of those early stories and those early role models is absolutely critical. Mm. And I think the second thing, when I think back on my own schooling and one of the, the group I, I thank in the acknowledgements of my book is, is my teachers because I was so blessed to have some amazing educators was the more opportunity we get to try things in school, the better. Not just learning, rote learning kind of in a, in a sense, but that idea of taking learning and applying it and it being as safe to fail as possible. So I can try running a business in year nine commerce as I did, and it can be a kind of okay success, but I learned a whole bunch of stuff that allowed me to do it a whole lot better by the time I turned 19. Mm. And I could have a go, you know, like running a project at scale in year 10 um, and having the opportunity to take leadership of a group of 50 people and learn through getting stuff right and getting stuff wrong. I think those experiences are really pivotal. And when I spent time over in Israel, and you look at the culture they've got around giving, getting everyone to be entrepreneurial and have a go and fail and to pick themselves up and realise that's not the end of the world. Because part of it's not just that learning, it's also that ability to build resilience. Mm. I think that's really critical because in a lot of ways, and I say this about millennial generation, myself included, we got a medal for running in a race. We were a generation that were protected from failure. Yeah. And that was done with the best of intention, but there's a huge challenge attached to that with the resilience that we didn't build mm. and the messaging that we didn't get around um, what happens when it doesn't work out. And, and that's really important because um, we're living in a world with the volatility, uncertainty, ambiguity that is going to require us to kind of reset, recalibrate, go again, try again over and over. And so I think that's really important that we give our kids that messaging and the opportunity to see that 
for themselves and to build that in themselves. The generational side of things is is so incredibly interesting to me. And one of the things that came out of my first series of conversations that marries up really strongly with what you're saying then is a lot of the people came back and said, you have to be prepared to take risk. You know, you, you have to move out of your comfort zone. You can't let yourself kind of get trapped in this sort of small um, space or trapped by fear. And, you know, I think the more in schools we can push that resilience or, you know, encourage people to take risks and know that it's okay that you're going to fail I think that's going to pay enormous dividends back um, I just want to ask a couple of things because um, we're coming close to the end of our conversation Holly but have you ever negotiated for a pay increase yeah I have and again it's another area where uh, it's really um, an area I hold myself feet to the fire on in terms of like how can I go out and talk to women in particular because we know women often don't navigate this as strongly as some of their male counterparts uh, do if I'm not doing it myself. And the moment that again hit me was working, oh, this is, would have been probably a decade ago. And I was running a series of forums uh, seeking to empower young women back in Western Australia. And we, we got a recruiter in to come and speak at that event. And she'd been in the industry for 20 years. And I remember getting up and saying, do you know how many calls I get each week from men not actually actively applying for a role that we're advertising for, but just seeking to get general market information in order to empower them with their business case to go in and negotiate a pay rise. Mm. Sort of, you know, a few people guessed and the number was about 20. She's like, I could probably get about 20 phone calls. She said, can you guess over my 20 years in this industry, how many calls I've got from women seeking to do the exact same thing? And it was four. Oh, um, and it was just this contrast of 20 a week versus four and 20 years that just made me sit and go, wow, like, no wonder, like if we're, if we're going in and, and in fairness, the person sitting on the other side is looking at a well-presented business case with here's why I deserve to be paid more. Here's what's happening in the industry. Here's the movement. Here's what I could get elsewhere. Yes. Of course, that's a very compelling hand. And, and so part of it for me is um, helping us understand how, what we need to do ourselves to put our best foot forward. Um, and so that's something that's always stuck with me. And I've tried to be really mindful of, you know, in those moments, not backing away, also being prepared to walk away from people who I think are, are actively undervaluing and seeking to kind of use their weight and might to get away with something that is very unreasonable when I know they wouldn't do it to a male counterpart of mine. Mm. Um, so it, it's, there's a couple of different ways I try to make sure I own my worth and I practice what I preach in that regard. Um, it's very interesting and I even want to connect back just very briefly to what you said about, um, you know, the incredible generosity of the people that you've written about in your book and, you know, uh, them letting you share their stories and things like that. I think the thing that I've been just incredibly beautifully surprised by in terms of this interview series, but also in terms of, um, you know, anyone that I've wanted to reach out and learn from, people are so generous. Mm -hmm. like really generous with their time if you're prepared to ask most people um so even that question then about the um you know hr um and recruiting space people will help you if you you've just got to take that step to reach out and actually connect people will actually help you um if you do um tell me about um aflw i understand port adelaide's making a 2023 bid is that right we are it was very exciting last week to be in presenting to the afl executive as part of the the bid and this is something we've been building towards for 
for some time now, but really excited. And we're, we're 151 years old as a club and we've got this incredible history, incredible pride in what we do at Port Adelaide and very excited to bring all that expertise to bear on our entry into the AFLW competition. So yeah, it, it's phenomenal. As someone who at age 10 was kicked out of playing AFL because it was just for the boys, you know, to be able to full circle moment, be a part of my wonderful club's uh, really compelling bid for why we should have an AFLW license and to see the really wholehearted way that everyone from our CEO and president of our football club to our head of footy to all of our team are just behind it in every way in all the right ways has been sensational. So, I mean, the, the game's been incredible. Watching the growth of the competition, not just on the field in the AFLW, but watching when you go down to the local ovals on the weekend and you see scores of girls running around and, and just the, the excitement that that gives for me in terms of a new generation of role models. Um, we know the significance of sport when it comes to this country, when it comes to uh, what people believe they can be, that whole idea if you can see it, you can be it. And that's not just in terms of wanting to be a sports star, but it's seeing girls be tough and strong and competitive and the importance of some of that messaging uh, rippling out through um, boys and girls for that matter. I mean, one of the things I love is the boys that show up and cheer on uh, the AFLW too. So it's the, the importance of the equality and the messaging and the positioning of the game that I think is fantastic as well. Fantastic. Holly, I want to wind up by asking you, um, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Oof, it's an interesting question. It's one I've spoken a lot about over the years too in, in, in a generational context. I know you mentioned earlier that generation and generational stuff is interesting in this space and it is when it comes to the feminism as well. You know, when I was involved in starting Young United Nations Women um, many years ago now, we used to have conversations around feminism a lot and it was an interesting one with people in my generation because I would absolutely identify as a feminist because I believe if you're for the advancement of women's rights, if you're for equal rights, uh, if you're for equal human rights, then you are a feminist. Yep. And by that definition, I think almost everyone I know is a feminist. But it was really interesting, this want to disassociate with that word and, and the baggage that it had for some people, you know, and the frustration I think that it had amongst you know, people of uh, maybe my, my grandmother's and my mother's generation that our generation wouldn't use it um, because mm -hmm. they had, like, particularly when I talk to my grandmother, I mean, what that generation did is extraordinary in terms of what they worked through and pushed through and the, the incredible pioneers and advocates. Um, and so when I, th I think about that, you know, when I understand their frustration when they see us going, oh, that's, that's not a word I want to identify with. And I think in part it's just because it's become like with so many terms, it, it kind of gets flipped back and used against you. So for a lot of people, I think feminism became this extremism, you know, this extreme way of pushing for women's rights that involve being anti-men or, um, you know, burning your bra or having to live and look a certain way, whatever it might be. And so I do agree with you that to some degree, the word I think has to be reclaimed. I think we need to reclaim it in a way that allows a much more diverse group of people to sit under it. That includes men. I have a real problem with some of the uh, the turfs that we see at the moment when it comes to transgender women. So I think we need to think about the intersectionality of this and, and how this sits across that conversation. Um, so I do think, particularly in the context of failing to, like when I look at it just as from a kind of, I guess, a, a rational or a mechanical perspective, I go, if I'm thinking about something I care passionately about, which is the progress of 
women in leadership, of pay equity, closing that gap, you know, a whole multitude of metrics by which we could say women are a long way off being equal. Uh, the definition of insanity for me is thinking we can keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. And that includes both the strategies and structural approaches to how we progress equality, but it also includes who we're talking to and who feels like they're a part of the movement, the conversation, and has responsibility for driving outcomes. Yeah. And so for me, there is a piece there where there's something that's breaking down in our language. And I think part of it is that there's a, there's a whole swathe of people who don't come under that umbrella. Mm. And because they don't come under that umbrella, they feel... Uh, either excluded from the conversation, which means they're they're not going to be particularly pro or participative, or they feel like they're not responsible for what happens because, you know, women's rights are women's responsibilities. Or we, we've kind of defined the way in a conversation that I think has narrowed um, those that have, you know, taken the mantle up to push for it. So for me, brave um, feminine leadership is is really at the heartbeat of what we write about in the leading edge. It's choosing to do that next brave thing over and over. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the idea of how we talk about, you know, broader issues around feminism and women's rights, I, I do think we need to be talking about them in a way that allows more people to engage in and feel responsible for the outcomes. So um, it leads me to one final thing I did want to ask. I think I said the last thing was the final thing, but um, do you think um, do you think COVID's opening up any opportunities for this? You know, for the conversation or for the structure or or for changes broadly? How do you how do you feel about that? It's going to be interesting, I and mean, we're certainly at a a potential inflection point. And there's markers you can point to to say, hey, there's some positivity here. Uh, certainly when you see the degree to which the world has become a lot more embracing of flexible work and different working structures, you know, that can only be a good thing for, um, you know, households with working parents. And it, it, I don't want to say, you know, working mums, because it should be working mums and dads and mums mm-hmm. and mums and dads and dads and, yep. and all configurations. Um, but I think that there is some optimism in that, that there will be a uh, less of a wedded nature to the idea that you have to be in the office, that business travel has to look like X number of weeks away from home per year, all that sort of thing. There's there's yeah. positivity there. There's there's some worry in the data though. You know the the overwhelming nature by which women women bore the the caring responsibilities associated with COVID pretty much lined up with our pre-COVID data on the caring responsibilities uh, for children in the household or elderly parents and and that sort of thing. The number of women who left the workforce, uh, certainly I've seen the US data on that. Um, Again, overwhelmingly women leaving the workforce, not men. And uh, the other thing that's sort of, you can read conflicting reports on, and I don't know that I've I've really got a clear view because I think um, the data, at least I've seen different reports, so I'm not sure where this is it. But the other one to keep a watch on is just what nature of roles have been automated. Um, A lot of administrative roles and some of those logistical things we had to automate last year by virtue of system processes changing or needing to digitize or needing to be contactless. And I don't know if we have a full picture of whether that has more adversely impacted men or women. Mm. So there's there's a, a couple of different things, I think, that sit in that. At the same time, I think you've seen a desperate call around the world for new leadership. There's been so much frustration with how... Uh, the various parts of the pandemic have been responded to over the last year and, the, and we are still in it. I mean, look at us here. We're a long way out the from out the other side. But what's been interesting is, is how well countries with female leaders have responded mm. and how well characteristics that we would typically associate with female leaders, and this is a gross generalisation, but the role of empathy and things like that have played in 
um, successful leadership, whether we're looking at Norway, whether we're looking at New Zealand, as well, the, the climate movement and some of the key voices that are happening in that conversation. So at the same time, this frustration and COVID here has been compounded with what's happened in Canberra. So many C's in that sentence. That was unintended alliteration. But we, we have. We've had this moment where we've gone, oh, my gosh, is that the culture of the place that's in charge of our very livelihoods and ability to leave our homes right now. Um, and are we serious that that's what we're voting into power? And do we really need to recalibrate? And how problematic is it that we don't have more women and diverse people full stop wanting to enter into that world because of how toxic it is and what they have to trade off to do it? A whole so I think different. we're finally asking these big questions. Yeah. And, and the hope is that we can slate back some accountability because those questions without accountability I don't think lead anywhere, but I think those questions with some can make a difference. Um, a whole other conversation on Annabelle Crabb's series, Misrepresented. Um, yeah, absolutely fabulous um, and and horrifying and all sorts of things. Yeah, all of time. Holly, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, you uh, having your voice as part of the conversation is is really powerful, and I just want to thank you so much for that. I'm also incredibly excited. You know, when I think back, right, circle right back to the beginning where you shared the impact that your grandmother had on you. Um, I can only imagine the impact you're going to have on on your grandchildren. No, so, that's very kind of you to say. Um, yeah, absolute pleasure spending time with you. So thank you so much and best of luck for The Leading Edge. Thank you so much, Melissa. And, and thank you so much for creating a conversation space for this. It's not a topic I think we have enough of a dialogue around. So credit to you for instigating it and for the, the thoughtful way in which you've curated the series and the questions. So thank, thank you for you. that. I'm going to keep asking. <laughs> I love it. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.